You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight, we're talking about Akira Kurosawa's 1950 classic, Rushamon. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war. No great depression. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Jeremy Benson. I guess I was supposed to speak. Hey. <laughs> Come on, buddy. You got to liven up. We're talking about Kurosawa here tonight. We're in the Wayback Machine. That's right, man. This is definitely the oldest film that we've uh, had the pleasure of talking about. 1950. So it's, what is that? 66 years, man. But yeah, we're talking about uh, Akira Kurosawa's 1950 classic, Rushamon. And this is kind of intimidating film to even talk about. So many people have written books about this movie. Of all the films we've talked about, I think this is the one that is probably most studied. Yeah, most studied, most written about, and everybody considers this a classic. And there's there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff with this movie. Um, this was Kurosawa's. This was not his first film, but this was like the film that broke him outside of Japan. Where he got noticed by Westerners, Europeans, Americans. We all took notice for Kurosawa after this. I think they won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. And that's what shocked everyone. And then, of course, this movie went on to be one of the first films to win an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Uh, it was one of the films that got that category created at the Academy Awards. So It's always interesting to go know? back and watch any of his movies, really. Because you, you can see, like... Those first beginnings of cinema language, I think you said it the other day while we were watching the movie that between him and and him and Hitchcock, like the modern cinema language was invented. Oh yeah, yes. Hitchcock and Kurosawa gave so much to the the language of cinema. What we do with shots, how we tell stories in a visual language. Uh, those two guys, I yeah. are the ones I hold up. Watching it, you can you can tell how like Spielberg was influenced and. Oh yeah, absolutely. Even Star Wars, like. Lucas, yeah. you can you can definitely see the the influence onto Lucas. Well, Lucas Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola were extremely instrumental in the last half, the last half of Kurosawa's career. He was getting all his money from those guys. Those guys were getting the American dollars, getting the European money to fund his projects in the in the eighties. Really? Yeah, I did not know this. Kurosawa is very he's kind of like the Japanese version. Uh, cross between uh, Spielberg and uh, Kubrick in a lot of ways. Like he's known for being extremely demanding. Uh, he's going to do the things that he wants to do. If it takes a long time, it takes a long time. You know, sometimes it just happens that way. A little bit of a perfectionist. 
I think he's so good at his craft. I was I was reading his biography, which has an excerpt in the Criterion Blu-ray of Rushamon. If you don't have that, highly recommend picking that up. But this movie is uh, in the public domain, so you can watch it online for free. So there's no reason not to watch this movie. You can watch it whenever you want, for free, completely legally. But you should buy the Criterion Collection. Absolutely, because it's got the better picture quality. It's got the extra features and on we, it. And we like the guys at Criteria Collection. We do. We love them. Kurosawa was a really interesting guy to read about. He had some problems with alcoholism and, and different demons he had in his life. There was a suicide attempt um, in there. So I think like all great artists. A little troubled. Yeah, he had some demons of his own. P.S. Really if, you, if you guys hear a little siren going off during this, we're braving a tornado to record this podcast. <laughs> yes, we are. I think Kurosawa was a very, you know, very interesting filmmaker going back and, and looking at his work. And uh, I like some of the things that he's adapted throughout his career. He, he's adapted a lot of Shakespeare plays. And, of course, this right here, this story, that Rushamon is actually based off of uh, two short stories. One called Rushamon, and then the other is called In the Groove. Uh, and In the Groove is pretty much the middle section of this film where it's about the murder and the rape. The actual story of Rushamon that kind of is really the story that kind of bookends this film. And the short story is about um, this guy who is a servant, and he is let go um, due to just trouble in the city. Um, like, they've had problems with earthquakes and things like that. And he's sitting at this this ruined gate on the outside of the city. And that's what Rushamon means. It's a, it's, a, it's a gate you enter a temple in. It's this big gate. They used to have these gates that surrounded their temples. And the, the outer gate was known as Rushamon. This guy's sitting there, and he ends up going up to a tower, and he catches an old woman uh, pulling hair out of a corpse. She's pulling the hair out, and he starts to attack her, and he, he goes into this thing like, you know, how can you possibly steal uh, this woman's hair, disrespect her, her dead body like that? And she goes into this, her story of like, the, you know, I use the hair to make wigs, and then I take the wi wigs, and I sell them, and that, that's how I eat. Uh, anyway, at the end of the story, the man just ends up taking all her clothes and is like, well, I need these to survive, too. And he leaves. And it's, it's an interesting story that carries kind of some of the themes. Um, but as we get into this movie a little bit later, uh, Kurosawa actually took that idea and he kind of changed it for the end of this movie and made it a little bit more hopeful and not so not so bleak. We, we talked about some of the history here and all that stuff. Benson, what did, what did you think of Rushamon? Had you seen this movie before? I, I had seen it before. It been a while. Um, it was cool to come back to it, though. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's basically the, it's the point of view of a murder from four different people. And everybody's point of view is different. So, obviously, some people are lying. Or everybody's lying. Or everybody's lying. Yeah, you know. Um, you know, a lot of the, like, the writing about the movie always comes down to, like, it's a great study of humankind and human nature of how we, we want to preserve ourselves and make ourselves better. It's a timeless story, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a story that has definitely been repeated a lot. I mean, and if, if you think about it, like, from the 50s, I mean, this, this movie was made in the 50, in 1950. Yeah, 1950. Uh, and you're dealing with a rape and, you know, it, some pretty heavy material here. There is some he heavy material. And you know what? I'm not I don't want to, like, go out and not address some of the things in this room. Like, you have to realize this movie was made in, in 1950 in Japan, and on top of that, it is a, it's a period piece. So its attitude toward women is not 
not really the best, to put it lightly. It's it, not the most modern look, but... It's pretty you, sexist. Do you really have to kill a woman if she's had two men? Wow. Yeah, these, these things are brought up in the movie, and it does seem... You know, it, it seems really harsh, but you have to remember the culture and the time that it, it's coming from and reflecting. So you can't watch Birth of a Nation and, you know, judge it by today's standards. Yeah. You know, you have to appreciate what the film was doing for its time, even though that's probably the most racist film in the entire world. I can't think of a more racist movie. Uh, you know, like one of the things I thought was interesting with the movie, they never really address whether she gave in. To the bandit, or did the bandit rape her? Well, she does different things in different, in different accounts. Yeah, in different you know. versions. Like in some, she willingly lets the bandit have her in front of her husband, who's tied up at a tree. And in other accounts, he takes her. And now she's shamed because she's had two men, and she knows she should kill herself. That's one of the things I always enjoyed about the movie, is like that kind of comical undertone that you get. Like, the first one's kind of like, you're just watching this terrible thing happen and then it goes on it it does kind of get a little funny because each story is so to whoever's telling the story it's it's thrown in such a light that yeah it's making them look great yeah like even when the the medium is telling the story from the dead guy's point of view he is even made to look like poor guy he's just such a victim in this situation how could this how could this hussy do this yeah that is the one thing it's like the woman is at fault at all times. It's always it's always the woman's fault. You know who my favorite character there is, though? I don't know his name, but it's he's the guy that's at the Rashomon gate. And they're all telling him the story. Oh, the and, commoner? And he's just like, people suck. What do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> well, they do, they do bring it on pretty heavy in the beginning. The priest is like, I've lost my faith in humans and... He's like, well, we're going to tell you a story that's going to make you question who you are and your humanity. And the commenter's like, nope, I don't trust people anyway. They all suck. Oh, I, I like his response. Like, after you get the first story, you come back to him. He's just like, so what? <laughs> it's just one person that got killed. Like, we have wars, and how many people die there? Right. Big deal. I do like that, that they, they bring in that point of view, and they do talk about that. You know, I, I know this, is like, this has nothing, but I almost felt like... The commoner guy was, he's the angry Trump voter. He's just like, <laughs> people suck, and, you know, we're just going to, like, it's a fucking crack shot. Fuck the system. It's what, What's really interesting, though, is, like, in the beginning of the film, the commoner is really the only person, he never lies in the film that we know of. No. He has no reason to lie. Um, and he does have a turn at the end of the movie. It is kind of shocking at the end of the film that you're like, oh, man, everybody is terrible. Well, but I, then, the, then there's the redemption of the guy that, who eventually tells us he saw everything happen and he's been lying to the judge about what happened. But then he takes the baby, so it, it sort of ends with that note of yeah, we're all shit, but we're all capable of good too. Yes, there is a very hopeful. They they get away from that original downbeat ending of the short story and end it on a, an uplifting note, which I think is good because the whole movie is kind of like and people do suck. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting too. Like in the movie, you, you find out that there's a, there, this guy has been killed, and there's this bandit, and his, the guy's wife had something to do with it. She was there. It's being presented in front of a judge, I guess. But you never hear the judge. It's the people looking at the, into the camera or above the camera, talking to a 
figure that's not there. Yeah. Giving their perspective. I find that really interesting because it's it puts you in the place of the judge. Yeah. But at the same time, they are looking above you. Right. So you're at their level. You almost become like a fly on the wall. Yeah. Like right up under the judge. You want almost want to look over your shoulder going, are you buying this shit? Because I'm not. <laughs> you, yeah, it, it does put you in that spectator role and almost invites you to be the judge in it, but at the same time kind of not. It, and it's really weird too is when they get into that medium later and they start doing the dolly moves. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, that's it adds even more surrealness to the medium section that's not in the other three stories. And that is one thing you mentioned the dolly moves. We all we often talk about young filmmakers and if if you're a young filmmaker and you've not watched a Kurosawa film, do yourself a favor. You will learn a lot about camera placement. Just watch it. Yeah, I think Steven Spielberg uh learned a lot from him and John Ford, man. I, oh, it's almost he's almost a you take those two and just mesh them together. It's almost it's a Spielberg. Yeah, it kind of is. With a little Alfred Hitchcock thrown in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Spielberg definitely likes his MacGuffins. There's that long bit where the woodcutter, uh, Take Shimura, I think is his name. He's Yeah, I'm not even going to try to pronounce these Japanese names. <laughs> I, will, I, I think I'm pronouncing that right because he was in Godzilla. Don't send me emails if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Just accept my apology. Uh, so I do know his last name is Shimura. He's walking through the woods, and it's this, it's this long scene that you don't really see um, really at all in modern cinema – what, about four minutes of him just walking deeper and deeper into the woods? And some of the dolly shots, like how he uses, like he'll have one piece of dolly track. They'll run the camera up to him, and it'll get to a, a point, and then he'll turn, and then we'll, he'll go back down the same dolly track again all in one shot. Oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely making the best use of the dolly track they had. Yeah. Dude, I, oh my god! Can you imagine setting that dolly track up in that? Because uh, okay, dolly tracks have to be. I guess we've never really talked about dolly tracks and laying. Dolly well, tracks. And, and we we know how it is to set dolly tracks <laughs> in the woods. in the woods, and you you quickly go okay, just shoot shoot it handheld. That that's uh, yeah it, yeah it's it's a little bit of a bitch because track has to lay even, right? And when you're inside, you have what they call shims, which are pretty much just. Like what, little triangle wedges? Yeah, it looks sort of like doorstops. Yeah, and you just slide those into the track to even the track out to get it as smooth as possible. Well, when you're doing it in the woods, you're basically, those shims become like, you build these like like little miniature cities to lay the, like the grips are just, you're just going, you guys are awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they'll come in and stack like apple boxes, which are just wooden boxes. Film, we have to label everything crazy. Or otherwise known as man makers. <laughs> like clothespins. For some reason, somebody's like, yeah, let's call them C-47s or bullets. <laughs> Why? We just want to be difficult. Actually, I heard that there's a funny story about that. I heard that the producer did that. I forget the producer that did it, but they listed C-47s down on the line at them and charged like some ridiculous amount of money to them. And that's why they're called C-47s. Ah. Because they're not, you don't want to put clothespins down and put like two thousand dollars of clothespins. So you know the C forty sevens, bro. That I don't know if that's true. Sounds important. I may have to research that. Yeah. So film terms. But yeah, you mentioned the shooting. Uh, I do have to talk editing. I love Kurosawa as a director, but there was somebody I forget. Some there was a Japanese director that once said. Kurosawa is Toho's best director. He's Japan's best surrealist. 
and he's the world's best editor. And there are a lot of scenes. We'll, we'll go through some of these sequences and these stories scene by scene here in a little bit. Um, but there are some scenes. Now, I'm not just talking about the wipes. George Lucas was obviously inspired oh, yeah. by these wipes. Not that this is the only <laughs> film to ever use a wipe. The editing in some of these sequences where we're cutting back and forth from the people that are at the tribunal or wherever this judgment, this right. trial is. And we're cutting back into the woods and we're cutting here and we're cutting there. And when, when are we seeing different reaction shots, especially in the wife story? I think that is some of the most beautiful editing of all time. Like I, I think that scene alone well, it, may never have been topped. A mentor of mine, when I first got into doing this, said the best editing advice he could give me was show what's important. That's what you're seeing in this. Like, there's not a wasted shot. It's you're seeing his look, her reaction, her. You know, it's just everything is important to build that sequence. Horse space. That's one of the things I've always. He seems to be one of the first to really use the camera to build a an environment. Now you said that we got we, we just got to go into it. Let's. Pl- I guess we'll play the the trailer. You'll hear a bunch of Japanese people speaking. But okay, we'll be back. は、私は What do you feel about rain? <laughs> well, seeing how it's pouring down right now. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie. How ironic. This beginning scene, this was a set. They built this entire set on the back of the Daie lot. Okay, this set is so big, they couldn't even complete the whole roof because the structure would collapse. <laughs> so they only built half of the roof. They got away with making it a little bit more dilapidated, I think, than their original plans. But it got – man, that is – It looks great. It does. I think it, it got nominated for uh, set design or art direction, whatever the Oscar was for production design at that point in the Academy's history. Uh, and, yeah, man, it, it really play, pays off. Like some of the, the way he uses the pillars are these huge pillars that are falling down, and they're in the foreground of the shots, and you can see – this priest and a woodcutter who are just sitting there under this what's left of this this gate, this temple gate, and they're sitting there getting dry. They look they look a little sad. Well, the whole set just kind of leans towards that. This is hard times for these people. Well, I mean, it just starts in ruins. Yeah, it's just rainy ruins, and it's just man, you just feel that atmosphere. That's something that's really uh, I really always dig about uh, Kurosawa's work is his attention to like what the environment 
is doing to the characters in his scenes. Like, and even though it's a set, it doesn't it doesn't feel like like if you watch, I'll just throw out like Dracula from the thirties or it feels like a set. Yeah, this doesn't feel like a set. No, I mean, well, you see the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it looks it looks like they're outside in the middle of some pouring rain, and you're like, man, poor guys. It's a giant, giant back lot. But, I, you know, they were trying—I <laughs> say it's giant, but Kurosawa actually wanted to get, like, another temple in the background because the gates are supposed to be circular. Yeah. So there should have been another one on the opposite side, and they were just like, dude, they're— Come on, You're out man. of room, man. Yeah. <laughs> this is physically impossible. We can't do this. So they, and they added like a little, uh, I think they added a little mountain back there. That's I a love paint. the I love the the title shot too, where it lands on that Rashomon sign. Oh yeah. Well, oh, man, the cinematography in this is really good. Like, uh, I will say this: the Japanese are extreme craftsmen, detail oriented level. Where it's almost to the point of being obsessive, and it's that pride they take in their work, and I think that really comes across on screen. So yeah, we we get into our story. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Well, what's great is when he starts off, Shimori just is like grunting. He's just like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, what? <clears throat> what is that guy? What is he doing? What's going on? You got a, you got a frog stuck in your throat. What's going on? What's here, wrong man? with him? He's just making these little grunts. I, I love those little character moments. This opening scene <laughs> in the rain and everything. This kind of gets us into the story of our film and. The common man shows up. So it's a this is not a setup for a joke. There's a woodcutter, a priest, and a common man. <laughs> and they're, they're sitting around. They all walk into a gate <laughs> in the rain. <laughs> Keep it simple, stupid. So they show up. We get, we get our story, and they have just come back from this trial. And that's when we get our, our first story the woodcutter. Well, he tells half his story. He tells about how he goes out into the woods and he finds yeah. this hat and he finds this other hat finds and some this rope. piece of rope and boom, he sees a dead body and he takes off running and he goes back and tells the authorities. I love the dead body shot when he finds the dead body. With the arms. Yeah, the silhouetted like rigor mortis hands sticking up. Okay, so there is a rape in this movie. There's murder. This was the 50s, so censorship is a little more tough. At this point in time than it is now. So keep right. that in mind when you're watching this. Yeah, even the stabs are carefully done off screen. That section of the movie, that is the woodcutter's version of events up until this point. And then it goes to the priest who says that he saw the husband and a wife. And this is the couple that is going to get a cat. The man is dead, we know for sure, because his body is at this trial. And then we get the priest. His story is just that he saw them. They were walking. Man had a bow and arrow. He was armed with a sword. Um, wife's on the horse. That's the story. Then we start getting into where the interesting accounts. Well, then we meet the bandit. Yes, played now, by Tashi Famun. Who tried to kill the bandit? What do you mean, who tried to kill the bandit? Well, when the guy that captured the bandit found him on the beach, he had arrows in him. See, that's what I thought. <clears throat> Uh, it's even when I was looking at it, like how it's framed, it kind of looks that way. No, they're just sticking out of the pouch that he has. Oh, it's yeah, it's just twisted kind of behind his back and it makes the arrows look like they're sticking out of his back. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, I, cause I, I could have sworn like, Oh, he got like stabbed in the back yeah, too. It looked like, like he was 
like somebody did him in. Yeah, I was like, how did he get stabbed with his own arrows? How did he get shot like that? That doesn't make any sense. But this is where we start getting different versions of the truth. Like, before the bandit can even speak, the guy that catches him is like, oh, yeah, I found him and he's thrown off his horse. Then when we get the bandit's version of the story, he drinks some bad water and he was just happened to, you know, be throwing up by the ocean at that time. Already we're starting to get different people's accounts of things. And, of course, you know, the, the sheriff guy, the deputy, he wants to look awesome to the judges, right? Right, 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 right. You know? Like, he, he's even I caught boasting. the infamous bandit. Yeah. He's like, ah, last time I caught him, he also had the sword. <laughs> you know, it's just like, all right, dude, calm down, all right? Yeah, you, you caught we him. We get it, Dirty Harry. Yeah, yeah, chill out. Hey, did you guys see what I did yesterday? <laughs> totally caught that. I did it. I caught him. Toshiro Mifune. Uh, plays the bandit, very famous Japanese actor, Seven Samurai, High and Low, Yojimbo, popular world actor. I don't know how true this is, but I'll I'll put the article in the show notes. But George Lucas actually offered Mufune the Obi-Wan Kenobi or Darth Vader roles. Really? And he turned it down. True story. So not the smartest guy on the planet. Well, you know... <laughs> You can't win them all, you know? You were in Seven Samurai. You can't be in Seven Samurai and Star Wars. You can't rule the world. Who would have known Star Wars would be Star Wars? Yeah, that's true. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, I I just was kind of trying to be quiet before that went off on a Star Wars tangent. It's 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 easy to do to go off on a Star Star Wars. But, you know, it it kind of is relevant here to this. You know, I mean, I think Kurosawa's work was a huge influence on Star Wars. We talked about that Definitely. in our Star Wars podcast. And he's a really important filmmaker to American filmmakers of the 70s that were yeah. getting their start. And it's it's cool to see, I guess now that we're in the generation that we are, we kind of grew up with their work. Right, but it's cool to see where their work came from. Exactly. So yes, the bandit story. This is where you kind of get off. You don't really know what the movie is yet at this point. No, you're really not sure what's happened. Yeah. You just know somebody's dead. And the bandit is pretty honest about every crime that he commits. He doesn't come out and say, it's not like he's dishonest where he's like, oh no, I didn't murder that guy. He's very forthcoming. I murdered the dude. I raped the chick. And I think my favorite part of his story was when he ties up the husband and then goes back and gets the wife to show her how weak her husband is, that she he is now tied up. He's so excited, too, when he's running through the woods. Yeah, he's like, look, look, he's like a little kid. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Mifune really owns this role. I really, He's my favorite uh, actor in this movie. I really enjoyed it. He's like, he hey, look, what, look at your husband all tied up and weak. Don't you want to bone me now? <laughs> well, even when he just, like, when he sees her walking on the road, and he's like, yeah, this is when I got the idea to rape this kid. <laughs> and it's this... It's a shot. I love all the shots in the sequence where they're they're coming up. They, you know, it's the husband is pulling his wife on this horse. She's got a veil over her head. Yeah, and the husband stops and he sees her, and it goes to this wide shot. And right in the middle of the frame is this big fucking tree trunk. And on the f- left side of the frame, you have the bandit taking a nap, and then you have the husband over on the right side of the frame, tree trunk in the middle, totally separating them. And- yeah, perfect symmetry. Such beautiful visuals here. When they go into like the veil, like blowing up, and he sees just a little bit of her face, and at that moment, she's a goddess. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I knew I had to have her. Then I kind of like the bandit at this point too, because he's admitted to killing the husband. But at that point, he's like, well, yeah. I didn't want to kill him. Exactly. Right? I wanted to just rape her and then not kill him. But 
Sometimes the cookie crumbles. I would probably just want to die too. Like, yeah, just go ahead and kill me. I don't want to. I don't want to watch my wife get I, raped. Yeah, I don't want to then this. die. You know what's interesting too in this in this first part of the story, all the way up to he runs he runs into the husband and he tries he he gets him to go with him. He coaxes him to go into the woods. He's found some swords that can sell him. Yeah, he goes in there. He ties him up. When he goes and gets the wife, that version of the story never gets told again. I've always wondered: Is that like do, did did everybody just at that point agree that that was truth, or we just you know of course I was just like I don't I don't we don't have time for this. I, that's one thing that's always interested me about this movie. I just, I just assumed that that was the truth part. I kind of what baffled me honestly was the differences between the woman's story and the woodcutter's story. Well, I mean, they get so insane as they go, man. Because they're really close. Except for in her story, she accidentally falls and stabs her husband, or no, she he, he she faints and yeah. somebody kills him while she's not there. Well, I think she's admitting to it in her in her version. Let's go through the bandit. Let's go through the bandit version real quick. He rapes her. Well, in his version, it's rape at first. No, even in his version, at first it's rape. Well, he starts kissing her, <laughs> and then she sort of gives in. Well, yeah. I mean, she's like, hey, Bandit, you are a real sexy guy that just came out of nowhere. And you smell so good. <laughs> Would you smell? That she is... didn't really say that, but it, it's all in. It's all implied. Well, the Bandit, like, even though like I don't know the clothes that they're wearing, like, and he's obviously not wearing a Komodo or anything right. like that, but you can tell he's dressed like a slob, even, even yeah. though like, this is supposed to be hundreds of years ago. It's you like, can tell he probably smells pretty rough. Yeah. Oh, you know, we were talking about the environment earlier. One thing the bandit always does I love, man, is... Slapping at the mosquitoes? Yes, dude. I love that. Every time he's thinking, it's just like, oh, I gotta get this bug. And he's constantly doing that. I thought that was a great little little character thing that he constantly did throughout the uh, through the movie. It's those little touches, man. It's the little touches. <laughs> Make it special. She, she gets raped. She kind of gives in. And then this is where things start to get a little bit interesting. Because in his story, she tells him that she'll go with whoever wins the fight. But she was shamed because now she's been with two men and she can't return to her husband. He's trying to talk her into marrying him. And she tells him, basically, I, I am shamed, I can, but I can leave with one of you. But the other one has to be dead. Yeah, because her husband can't know her shame. What? One of these guys has got to die because you slept with both of them? Yes. Well, okay, wait. She didn't sleep with both of them. She was raped by one. It's, she She's married to the other one. So. <laughs> let, me, let me clear that up before I get hate mail. <laughs> this fight scene is actually presented well. Viciously. Yeah, like they're actually fighting pretty good. Yeah, the, the, the bandit even says, we touched swords 23 times. He is the only person to ever touch swords with me 23 times. He doesn't know what happened to the woman. He doesn't know what happened. There's also a dagger that's missing. Yeah. With some jewels on it. I mean, he didn't know anything about that. I thought I thought this is interesting stuff that comes up later in the movie. His version and the woodsman's version later were the closest too. Yeah, they are. So now we go into the distraught wife. That story gets picked up pretty much like after she's she's just been raped. Even in Mafune's uh story when when she's about ready to get raped, she does go crazy on him. She does like bust out her dagger and she does try to kill him. I think there's there's a really sexist line in there like uh what's the little old woman going to do to a man or something like that. And it's she does she does try to fight. In her version, 
You know, I, I, it's really weird that you don't see that first part ever again, and we just pick it up rape on for for every single one. I find that really weird and fascinating. Well, I thought what was interesting about her part was after the bandit leaves her there, and she's left with her husband, it becomes all about like him just looking at her, <sighs> and just his look at her because now she has had two men, and this is just not going to work. And she's just, kill me, kill me, kill me. I will kill myself. Yeah, no, she she goes a little crazy on him, but he is giving her a really smug look. I hate you with a smile. It's Yeah, it's a pretty much a year worthless look. And how this scene is done, they cut to a close up of the husband and you get you get to see his his face for just a second. And it's real quick. And then they go right back to this amazing over the shoulder shot of the husband. We're looking at we're looking at his wife and she prances from left to right. But the camera is constantly fixed on this over the shoulder, and they're just dollying back and forth to catch her as she's, you know, swerving from right to left. Yeah, and it's doing a great job of kind of keeping the same framing. So it's his gaze is constantly beating down on her, even though we're we the audience are not seeing it. We are just seeing her reaction to this entire scene. But we also, but we're seeing how still he is. Like he's not moving. He's not. He's giving her that iron gaze. Man, I think this right here is, this is masterpiece, man. This is just, this is why cinema exists as an art form. And then in her her it's version, great. she eventually just can't take the gaze anymore and she passes out. Yeah, well, she it's implied she uh, she kills him. But she doesn't say it. She just says she, she doesn't remember, she passes out. She wakes up and somehow a knife got lodged into yeah, his her, chest her dagger was lodged into his chest which is the same dagger she tried to fight the bandit off with that which is, is missing, missing and the woodsman points out that she he was the man was not killed by a dagger he was killed by a sword yeah he was yeah they keep cutting back in between each one of these between every story that we go back to the Rushamon uh in the rain so well that's one of the interesting things we should bring up is we're not only cutting from the trial to the flashback of what happened but we're also cutting from the flashback of what happened to the rashimon temple while the guys are talking about the trial yes flashbacks within flashbacks covered in flashbacks right flashback squared brother or cubed something like that is it in a math cast (sighs) (laughs) take your equations on somewhere else we don't like that shit here at this point the accounts have been different. Everything's still in the realm of the real, though. Now we come up to the husband's story. Which is told through the point of view of a medium who is supposedly talking to the husband in the afterlife. Which it, this, Now, this is in the actual novel, uh, or the short story that he's based this off of. I just thought this was such a weird inclusion. Because everything up to this point, it, there's no supernatural anything going on. Well, Even see, this dead guy is lying. But Well, you know, honestly... I think kind of the point of it is because the movie is almost about lies within lies. Yeah. So I don't think there is anything supernatural going on. I think this medium is straight up lying. That is one interpretation of this Because, uh, I mean, think about it. The story she tells is nothing like the eyewitness account that we're told later. I was reading one film criticism. I can't remember who it's from now. I wish I could credit them, but uh, they were pointing out that 
Man, Kurosawa's opinions of mediums must be jack shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> just the way that this is portrayed, and it's, it's like, wow, look, everybody is a liar. And it's like, well, one profession that we have outside of a woodcutter and a priest, and we got a medium. And he's like... And it's just dramatic, sideshow, carnival act. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is kind of creepy, though. It's... Um, Man, for 1950, I bet you this would wake you up right in the theater right away. Cause it's, well, because she's gyrating around. Yeah. She's putting on a show. Yeah, and the the actual voice of the, the husband, the male, is coming out of this female. And it's it's like, uh, it's got some kind of like distortion, I'm dead effect. <laughs> I'm talking through a medium effect. It's kind of creepy and unsettling with the smoke. And th- it is weird that this is the only version in the court. That we have that's got dolly move, it's got camera but move. At the same time, we're not seeing it happen in court. We're being told about it by the priest. So this is his version of what he saw the medium doing. Yeah. Like everything in this movie is someone's version of something. There's no way everybody is not lying in this movie. Everyone yeah. that speaks in this movie has got to be lying. Except the common man. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He, he does not. Has no faith in humans and has no morals. Yeah, he's he's the only one that is. He is openly admitting the bleak nature of the of humankind. <laughs> he's like, look, guys, I don't lie to myself. I am a dick, okay, and I'm okay with it. Yeah, no, in his in his version, yeah, the the husband, um, he ends up take he ends up killing himself because like he's still tied to a tree for fuck ever. Uh, the bandit comes back. Uh, he lets him loose, and he's like, yeah, well, I, I couldn't find your wife. She runs off. The uh, The husband takes the dagger that we've we've talked about. Yeah, 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 and he stabs himself. Yeah, and it cuts back to the medium <laughs> doing the, uh, the fall over. She's like, oh. Yeah, and then the husband talks about how he was cold and alone. And Yeah, somebody came and got the dagger. The medium thing is it's obviously she's doing her job somewhat because she knows enough details that she— well, really, all she has to do is listen to the first two testimonies and tack on a different ending. Uh, but I don't—I didn't feel like anybody else was in there because you see the priest and the woodcutter in the back at all times, but you don't see anybody else off to the side. But it's just that one shot. The entire—they do some close-ups and stuff, yeah. but really, the we trial don't really is just know done. Who else is round? Yeah, you don't. All you could see is a wall and the gravel. Now, see, after this, we go back to Rashomon. They're all sitting around the fire. The common man's like, blah, blah, blah. Bullshit, bullshit. And then that's when the woodcutter messes up and says he was not killed by a dagger. He was killed by a sword. And the common man looks up and he's like, you saw it. You lying son of a bitch. You <laughs> saw it. Yeah, the com- look, man, he, that dude knows like right away. He's like, hey, hey, hey woodcutter. He, he, he can read people. You no, I need the whole story. Come on, you told you kept something from the courts, but you can't keep it from me, buddy. Why didn't you tell them? Why didn't you tell them? I did not want to get involved. And he doesn't, man. He he really he and really he doesn't fi- want to get involved. And the common man figures it out too. He figures out the mystery of the dagger. Yeah, it turned. Well, I get. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll can, get to it. But okay, we'll get to it. And at that point, that's when Woodcutter tells the final and probably closest to the truth version of what happened. Yeah, probably. And in that version, the wife wants the wants to go off with the bandit and tells the bandit, you have to kill my husband. 
And then the bandit turns around and is like, hey, I will kill this bitch right here, man. Yeah. She just disrespected a man, and we ain't having that. We got to stick together, yeah, brother. Yeah, the bandit straight up looks at the husband. Do you want me to kill her? Roughest line is when he's like, yeah, at that moment, I almost forgave him for everything he did. I was like, damn, son. <laughs> that is some cold shit. He raped your wife. He's the whole reason you're in this motherfucking thing. He tied you up and... <laughs> Man, it must have been tough being a woman back then. Oh, and you're going to forgive this dude? It gets to a point where it's like neither one of the men want the woman. The husband doesn't want her because she's been with two men. and She's just shameful. Yeah, that is It's the thing. It's full of shame. Yeah, you're shameful. That is the word they keep using. Now the bandit's like, well, the husband doesn't want her. Man, I don't, I don't know. Do I want her now too? Because I mean, he's right. Like, <laughs> it is like having secondhand toys. She didn't try to stab me a second time. I mean, was her heart really into it? Mm, I don't know. This is the only time I think feel like in the movie where she actually gets like a moment where she's not weak. Right. Where she actually calls out both the men for their bullshit. And it's like, hey, you guys aren't being real men. Which I actually, I, li- I really like that moment. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Because the guys are actually kind of like, oh yeah, maybe we are being kind of dicks to her. Maybe. I mean, this whole situation sucks, so I guess we'll just do something. <laughs> cool. And their fight scene is nothing like the first one at all. They're going to fight for her. The winner gets to keep her. Basically, she's tricking them so she can get away. And the fight is hilarious because these two guys do not want to fight each other. No, they're actually scared for their yeah, life. Yeah, they're like, it, it's like watching if I was in a sword fight with somebody and... I think that is extremely refreshing to actually like you feel you feel sorry right. for these two guys because like, they're so scared to get close to each other. Yeah, like you, you, and you're remembering back to the the bandit saying we touched swords twenty three times, and you're like, no, you touched swords like twice. Maybe you you got within spitting distance three times. <laughs> yeah, he loses his sword. That the samurai dude, like the husband, just yeah. knocks that sword out of him. He starts like he almost gets chopped to pieces like five times and. It's got a real good energy to it, and I, man, I, I, I like seeing a sword fight where the the two people fighting are just terrified of each other. Yeah, they're terrified of dying. Yeah, they are. Even when he goes and he dies, though, there's that moment of plea, and even the bandit is wrestling with the idea of killing this dude. Yeah, he's not like just heroically running in and stabbing him. He's like, oh, I don't want to do this. No. But if I don't, this guy's going to kill me. It's really painful. Like the, the way he's slowly backing up into those bushes, and it's just, it's so drawn out, man. And feel feels so much emotion here for the scene. You feel so sorry for the husband. You kind of feel sorry for the bandit, even though he's a rapist and a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then it gets back to the Rashomon gate, and that's when we suddenly hear a baby crying. So apparently there's been an abandoned baby at the gate the whole time. So they go back, and the common man takes the Komodo off of it. Um, and the woodcutter's like, hey, you can't do that. You can't steal that. That's not yours. And he's like, hey, I'm not the only one that steals stuff. And he's figured out the reason the woodcutter did not tell the full story is because he stole the dagger with the jewels in it and went and sold it. Yep. Oh, but he's got six kids to feed, so he really needed the money. So you get that shot of the of the common man walking off with the little baby's kimono, laughing, just just loving the deceit that comes from humankind. The priest does kind of get on my nerves a little bit too. Like I feel like when that common man is like, "Oh, if I'm gonna have to hear a sermon, shut up and go away." Like 
Because this priest is like super. He's not like a, a like. Oh hey yes, come here. God'll God'll save us all. No, he's like man, he's like bleak. Yeah, I know, right? Like like the, this has really bothered him. The world is dark and destroyed, and I am evil. He has no faith everywhere. in humans at all. Right? And the common man's like, you're just now learning this. <laughs> I figured this out when I was six. <laughs> he could, when he gets the baby, and the and the woodcutters even like he reaches for the baby, and the priest. Pulls the baby well, away. Well, the priest is wanting to protect the baby from all of this despicableness. It's such a good moment because the, the woodcutter's just like, look, no, I got I got six kids at home. What's one more? I can take this one in. And that's when the priest is like, oh, my God, you've restored my faith in humanity. I'm so sorry that I thought you were, you well, were see, evil. I, th- I thought that was a brilliant moment because it was like – Oh, it's totally brilliant. You know, we all have our faults, but we all can step up and be good at the same time. Yeah. And it does. We can all step above the common man. Obviously, he's not gonna. No, no, that guy's just gonna take your clothes and leave you for dead. (laughs) Because he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't, man. He's got to eat, bro. I I have heard a lot of complaints. um, Well, actually, the only complaint ever really. No, that's not true. I've heard two complaints about this film, and only two ever. Uh, Well, I'm sure if you get on IMDb, you'll hear more. But we're not going to talk about those. The walk through the woods is always complained that it's too long. I think that's just a pacing issue in a different time period. And yeah. personally, the shots are so beautiful that doesn't bother me at all. I, mean, I can hell, see that when, complaint. When my daughter was watching The Exorcist, she was like, "Really? Do they have to stay on this shot so long? They're walking down the street." Yeah, it's we just a different it. era, you yeah. know. Yeah, that's what I think. Um, and then the other thing is the baby popping up at the end, like the baby just coming out of nowhere. I don't I, have a problem yeah. with that. I don't. I don't. This whole movie is symbolic. It's this yes. is an art house movie. I mean, it's not an action film. Uh, no, I don't. Well, no, it's not an action film. No, he did action films. Seven Samurai is an action film. This you know what like I mean, that. though. This, yeah. I mean, it's got some action in it, but yeah, it's got this is fights, a very but... symbolic movie. This is not meant to be dumbed down to the level of, oh, blow up. Cool. That's Captain America. That's Iron Man. Let's rock and roll. No, no, no big explosions. None of that. I mean, I read somewhere it is. it is... A great look at human instinct and just how humans protect themselves in the little lies they tell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we all lie to ourselves a little bit. We all lie. We all lie to protect our own image. Yeah. Like nobody wants to run around being like, oh, I feel I'm a worthless human (laughs) being. I'm a such a. I mean, even the asshole, even the woodcutter, who's might be the most noble person in the movie. Yeah. Is lying because he wants to protect himself from having to say, "Yeah, I stole the dagger and sold it so my six kids could eat." But I love that man. This that one line that he drops when he's like, "I got six kids. What's one more?" It's just like, "Well, I know now why you stole the dagger, right? Because you got to feed fucking six kids. <laughs> you got a clan back at home. <laughs> and if y'all are living pre, we've talked about this pre-industrial revolution. We know what that takes. Oh." Man, at that point, you're just having kids so you can have labor and farming. <sighs> and daughters to sell off. <laughs> uh, you know, I will say, you know, it, 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 made, it made the uh, the chick and the witch look like she she, she kind of had maybe an easier life, you know. She, <laughs> <laughs> she was in America, the land of plenty. Yeah, I, you know, an, the extra 400 years difference made a huge difference. It was a huge impact on her life. She was just going to get sold. I mean, really, at the end of the day, not so bad. She didn't get raped and then have her husband go, no, fuck her. (laughs) I know you didn't do it on purpose, but that whole two penis thing is, (laughs) you just can't have that. Oh, honey, you were sexually, 
Violated? Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> like, just the worst. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, okay, that's that's Rushamon. That's uh, that's the film. Um, look, you guys have no reason for not seeing this movie, so please seek it out and uh, and watch it. Yeah, and before we wrap up, um, the thing about it that, it, that, I don't know, it just impresses me the most. is I mean, and I, We talked about it earlier, but if you go back and watch movies in the 30s or 40s, especially like the Hollywood churned out, you just you don't see camera work like that. One of the first movies where we the camera actually looked up and shot the sun. Yeah, through like, the trees and a dolly move. Or I don't know if it was the first one, but this is one of the first movies that did that. Like this film is famous for that. Um, you just yeah, you see shots that you see today a lot. Yeah, but you got to remember that at this time nobody had ever done it. This is a first of a lot of things, man. I mean, this is like. Uh... This is the first one where we get the different stories being told from different points of view. I mean, like views. the whole time we were watching it, I was like, hey, that's the shot from, and that's the shot from, and yeah. that shot's in. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, when you guys watch it, if y'all see any shots that you're like, oh, that's in this, send us an email. Let us know which ones you noticed. As a filmmaker, like, I've shot Kuros- Kurosawa shots and not even really thought that I was shooting a Kurosawa shot until later. I'm like, oh, that's the shot from. Watching a Kurosawa movie is. <sighs> I don't know. When I was in the in the nineties, I got exposed to Kurosawa. Um, you know, later in life, it was toward the end of the nineties, and I saw I actually saw this in theaters in summer of ninety nine, and man, I was blown away. And it, look, if you're if you're gonna watch Kurosawa, I think this is the one you start with. It's eighty eight minutes. It's real short. There's a lot of story for eighty eight minutes too, and it's entertaining. Yeah, it moves. If you want Japanese cinema, you want to get into Kurosawa. This is a good entry point film. We had a request to do Yojimbo, but, man, I just thought that, you know, Yojimbo, we need to do that just a little bit later. We need to tackle Rushamon first. I think this is the entry point to Kurosawa. This is like an entry point to older Japanese cinema. Just a little bit better than some of his other films, because a lot of people have a lot of people have issues with Seven Samurai's runtime. And if you watch this first, I promise watching Seven Samurai is so much more delightful. Personally, I think. You've I mean, been introduced to the world. Yes. Being, well, in, introduced to that culture and that, you know, because even though this film is extremely Japanese, I know a lot of Japanese people have, you know, complained about this being too Western. Yeah. But it's, I don't think it's, it's because it's accessible. It's, it's, exactly. it's accessible to Westerners. I don't, I don't, th- I don't think it's too Western. I don't think Kurosawa was Western at all. It's a universal, hey, look, this is film language. Run with me here, people. You get what I'm saying. You get what I'm doing. Because, I mean, I don't understand. I've seen a shitload of Japanese cinema. I don't understand all the cultures. I don't understand all the symbolism in the movies. There's some parts where I'm just, I scratch my head. I'm like, wait, what does that mean? Well, especially in this one, though, like most of the symbolism is more about humanity, not Japanese culture. Exactly. Like even so, the medium, like you understand you know, that. You know, English people are going to get that. It's just as, I mean, they're just as human as Japanese people. That's true. And you know, when they, but when they first started all doing lie this, just as much. Some of the assistant directors that uh, Daie gave Kurosawa went to him. There were three assistant directors. All three of them went to him, and they were just like, "Dude, dude, look, we don't understand the script for this movie." And he was just like, "Read it again, because it was written to be comprehensible. Like you should be able to comprehend this story." And they're like, "We did read it," and they were pretty insistent. And he was like, "Well, you know, it's about." people it's about us lying it's about who we are it's about how we accept one another and how we accept ourselves and go through day-to-day actions once you understand that i think you'll you'll get it 
he actually had to fire one of them because they didn't. <laughs> the other two got on board and they and they saw it. But you know, this movie did cause quite a stir when it first came out that it was a piece of shit, which is absolutely insane. And I forget who saw it, but there was a Japanese guy that saw it at. Um, it wasn't even a Daiei because the head of Daiei Studios was uh, very vocal about this movie being crap. I don't know why you would do that if you're the head of the studio. It's your product. But there was uh, some Japanese um, filmmaker saw the movie, loved it. And that's he's the one who sent it over to the uh, Venice Film Festival. And that's where it got all of its claim. And then it spread throughout the whole world over. You know, I mean, look, even greats, sometimes, I mean, you're not respected right then and there at that moment. You know, you have to. Well, when you're breaking the mold, you're doing something people aren't used to. Why are you wasting film shooting trees? Why are you shooting the sun? You can't do that. Show a giant monster. There was a... Well, you know, the guy who directed Godzilla, that's actually uh, Akira Kurosawa's um, most favorite assistant director, Ashira Honda. But yeah, they were really good. They're really good friends. Kurosawa gave the um, death speech. What a death speech is called? Eulogy at uh, her, um, Honda's uh, funeral, so... Great, great guys. Uh, it's, a sh- it's a shame we lost them. They lived a good long life. They made it to their, their 80s. All right, Didn't to get out of this glum mood, to sum it up. <laughs> it's like, way to, way to go. If you're, if you're a film go. fan, check it out. Watch it, and then just you know pay attention to it. See what movies you notice it has influenced. And you can hit us up on Twitter now. Yes, Twitter and Facebook. Guys, shoot the shit, hell. We're it, talkative guys. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I guess we are. You know, we do a podcast where we talk, you know, so that we, makes, we, we, we were sense. doing this before we we started recording it. So we just we just did it without, you know, headphones and microphones. And it's, it's sort of a funny thing. Like our little tagline is because two dudes talking about movies because we'd be doing it anyway. It's sort of what we yeah, it's sort of the truth. I mean, most of the conversations I have with people are about about films, you know. I think that's a it's a good it's a good way to br- break the ice with somebody you know you can talk about something you love and who doesn't love a movie everybody has at least a movie they love it may not always be a good movie but yeah no sometimes you get that guy that's like my favorite movie ever is Ferris Bueller's Day Off and you're like really I've got that, a good friend of mine who's that's your favorite who's into you know he's into films and he will openly admit that his favorite movie is White Men Can't Jump. Yeah, I mean, I can I can see where you like that movie, but that's your favorite movie? And when I ask him about it, he's like, look, I know it's not the best made movie ever, but the one thing I can say about White Men Can't Jump is that when I watch it, it always puts me in a good mood. Hey, man, that's the power of cinema. You can't take that away from anybody. It's a good closer. So, yeah, you've been listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. If you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew. Crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E at gmail.com. You guys can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I do have to jump in here real quick and just say that I (laughs) – for all you guys that were probably laughing at me in the beginning of the show, I did say uh, the name of the short story was In the Groove. It's actually In the Grove. I'm sorry about that. I just caught that when we were were cutting – I'm not going to go back and put that in there. So, yeah, hopefully you guys got a nice good laugh out of that. Um, I am an idiot. What are you going to do? The music here was composed by Fumio Hayazaka. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, He was a collaborator for a lot of um, Kurosawa's earlier works. And Mr. Hayazaka was also a um, collaborator with uh, Akira Fukube, who did the Godzilla music and 
man, these Toho guys in this time period did a lot of great stuff. So without further ado, this is the main title track from Rushamon by Fumo Hayazaka. Enjoy. Thank mm-hmm. you. 